I think there's two kinds of developers in the world. There's manufacturers and there's developers. And a developer is someone who looks at a corner and sees these beautiful lines and someone having coffee and they're going to make it their beacon, right? They're going to drive by on Friday night after they go to dinner with their wives and say, I built that. Okay. And then there's a manufacturer and a manufacturer builds a process, vertically integrates around it and stamps it out. And as they learn lessons, they keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And they just get really good at doing one thing. Okay. I'm a manufacturer. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. I am elated to introduce today's guest, Matt Shafiasari. After Stinson Investment Banking Firm in New York and a real estate private equity firm in Houston, Matt founded Urban Genesis. Today, Urban Genesis is one of the most active multifamily developers in the city of Houston, and the company is growing quickly. In today's interview, Matt goes into detail behind the success his company is achieving. We discuss the company's staple product, the Highline series, why this product is unique, and what advantages it has over a competing product. We discuss the difference between being a developer and a manufacturer. We talk about where Matt has set his sights for the next product series from Urban Genesis, as well as the fundamentals for starting a real estate business and what it takes to grow from zero and be successful. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Matt Shafiasari. Matt, how are you? It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. It's my first time. Yeah, well, I hope we can have some fun. There's certainly, yeah, a, I think so. There's certainly a lot that I want to talk about and many things that I'd like to pick your brain for. So let's jump right into it, Matt. Can we begin by giving our audience a little bit of context on who you are and what you've done in real estate and how that leads into what you're working on now? Okay, I think a good description of who I am is someone who started a business that was young enough to not know what risk they were taking. <laughs> and so that was a blessing in disguise. And okay. I chose a very difficult industry to start in, which is development right out the gate for a number of reasons, which we can get into. But ultimately, it, it comes down to there's less people that can do it and do it effectively. And at the end of the day, there's value added through the process. So I was willing to cut my teeth and learn some lessons early and do it. From a background standpoint, you know, I, started Urban Genesis May of 2013. And with this, the idea of being a thematic investor, and by doing that, I knew affordability was an issue. And I just didn't have a solution for it. But I knew if I just could stay in business long enough and figure out affordability, that would be somewhere where the space markets and the capital markets were going to intersect. And that just had a lot to do with where I was coming from, and where I was working and what I was staying. And so I jumped to go do this. And so fast forward today, Urban Genesis uh, is about $750 million of AUM, uh, which is really development, okay. ca capitalized development. And uh, we do about, we have about 3,000 units in our pipeline and with the goal of doing about 3,000 units every 18 months going forward of a product 
that I specialize in, I've created and branded around. It's called the Highline Series. And it's essentially an urban workforce housing, brand new construction product in locations that generally don't have any affordability. So I look for submarkets with affordability gaps and I, I put our product on the ground. And long and short of it is, is our product through some design and some rethinking and some innovation, we end up developing to about an aggregate 25% less basis than our competitors. And, and therefore, uh, we're in aggregate development by this. I'm usually about 40 to 60,000 a unit less mm-hmm. than a, a podium or wrap deal, depending on the market. And, and a rule of thumb in development uh-huh. is, is for every 10,000 a unit in construction savings, you save about 100 bucks in rent for equivalent return on rents. So I ultimately end up sizing to about a two to $400 a month rent differential to my competitor and orient myself toward what I call the emerging workforce or the missing middle. It's someone who makes forty-five dollars to $75,000 a year because at the end of it, the reason I exist and the reason we've been so successful is that there's one simple out-of-balance equilibrium that really stands out when you say it. And it's 85% of the new renter makes less than $75,000 a year. 80% of the new product requires you to make more than $75,000 a year. And that's a serious imbalance. And so we work really hard to figure out a solution. There's other ones, but we like ours. That's a very interesting story. And I do have a lot of questions on that. So the product that you deliver, is that at a, considered an affordable product or is it market rate? And is it just below market than the competition? Well, we like to call it accessible luxury. So it's market rate. We don't require any municipality participation or anything like that. I mean, we'll accept it in those instances because it's a good defensive position to take, right? I mean, you have property tax abatement and the city momentum behind you, which is great. But yeah, no, our business thesis is simply we're allowed to adjust our rents the way we want, but we underwrite that discount. Now, if somebody wants to come pay us more rent, I'm not going to stop them from doing that. But it's really an and it's designed to have an asymmetric payoff because our thesis has been apartments have been oversupplied since 2015. And if you were to put most developers in a room that aren't vertically integrated, they probably haven't had a very good time since 2015. The, the trick hasn't been working. So as a result, what we wanted to do was design a product that can participate when times are good, but have an asymmetric payoff, meaning a lower basis, so when times are bad, i.e. COVID, we can actually still, you know, perform better than our competitors. That's the goal. That's what we've done. Thesis certainly makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're delivering product a lot cheaper than the competition is, then I mean, that's a good strategy in of itself. Are you able to go into detail into what you do differently that creates those big savings in development costs? I can share some of the basic specifics. You know, there's some proprietary stuff in there. But yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's reimagining certain things that were norms for a long time. And I think the biggest thing at the end of the day is the way that conventional wisdom in apartment development works is you really are dictated by your parking and the way you look at parking. And one of the things that we do is we reimagined how parking works. And when you think about unit mix, and you think about what the conventional form of unit mix is, um, you know, there's always a two or three bedroom product in that apartment complex, right? We, when you really price that extra bedroom based on the utility of the parking space, 
that extra bedroom makes no sense because the dollar per foot just simply don't accommodate what you're actually paying for it. So we, we like to park our complexes at one per bedroom. So we try to go to municipalities that allow us to park at that ratio. And so, of course, zone districts, and if it's Houston, you know, we're always fighting for a parking variance or something like that, or just dealing with the archaic rules that exist here. But the real essence of what we do is, is we just view this, the two and three bedroom product as such a load on the parking, it's not worth it. Because when you're paying 25 to 35,000 a door, really dictated by your density, which is parking, it's expensive for that second bedroom and your per foots are lower and it's the last to leave. So why do it? And especially in markets like Austin, which you are in, where land is very expensive. That I mean, each parking spot that you save becomes a lot more valuable in a market of this kind. Exactly. So that's really the gist of it. And then there's nuances around, you know, our construction style. But one of the things that I want your audience to make sure they understand is where we save money, we put into the interior. And what we ended up creating is really a very special thing. 95% of the time, that renter is living a better experience in our communities because the units on the inside are generally of a high-rise quality in terms of the finishes and all of the stuff that you would be accustomed to in a high-rise by appliances packages and, and the security and you know the privacy and all that. And so it's been an interesting thing. I always say 95% of the experience with our renter is really generally better than most commodity apartment complexes. Where they take a concession is we don't do amenities unless it's you know a unique situation because most of our sites are so dense. It's not worth the amenity. I'd rather offer the, a rental discount versus you know compete in the amenity war just to get the rent. And so... What's proven out for us is... So what kind of amenities do you skip, do you leave out? We don't do pools at all. We'll do them, well, I've done a couple, but very rarely. And we definitely don't do gyms. There's a number of reasons, but uh, nobody really uses them. And most of our renter base, you know, the areas that we're in have so many gyms and so many high-rises around there. You likely have a friend that lives in a high-rise and they're going to do a way better pool than I am. <laughs> you know, there's no way I can compete with a pool like that. So... There's no point just to have it, to put it on a website. I'd rather tell you that I've got a better unit that you live in the whole time. I love that. I think that makes a ton of sense. I think nobody uses most of the amenities. They help you for the leasing tour, but that's probably about it. And I've actually seen, I mean, this is a, a strategy that I have started hearing more recently, and it's probably has to do with the affordability issue that you mentioned. I mean, just... Renters value a lot more these days, the savings of 100 to $200 or whatever it is in monthly rent than having access to the pool or to the gym. That probably has to do a little bit with the affordability issue and how costs have increased in the past decade and how the gap that you alluded to earlier between what people can afford and the housing supply that's out there, how that gap has gotten larger these strategies that you mentioned make more sense. You're exactly right. You mentioned earlier, Matt, something that piqued my interest. You said that apartments have been oversupplied since 2015. How do you build up that statement? What makes you say that? I learned from a very smart multifamily investor when I was actually uh, running acquisitions 
for a company called Lionstone Investments. And I split the country with another guy and I covered Texas to the West Coast. And this is a very uh, prominent developer. And he looked at one very simple ratio and it was jobs to new multifamily permits. So jobs coming into the city versus permits. And there's an equilibrium that the industry looks at. It's a range of four to seven. So for every four jobs, one unit of demand, right? That was the thought process. And so as we started to run that analysis in the markets we participate in, which is pretty much Texas, that was a signal we were dipping below that. And, you know, you had all of this job growth, but so much supply, so much supply. And so we really use that to this day to really forecast rent growth more than anything else. And if you were to run that ratio, we use five here, not four, just to be a little bit more conservative. You go into a market like Austin that has higher barriers to entry. It's more well-balanced. and It's a great market because what everyone complains about is also what the value is for developers, right? Versus a Houston where you just got to look at a piece of land and it'll become apartment. In Austin, you got to fight for it. And that fight has value. You'll notice that equilibrium in Austin is right around five. And that's why it has rent growth. And you look in Houston. And you look in 2018, and that equilibrium exceeded six, which meant more demand, right? So there, there wasn't enough units supplying the jobs. And we started seeing rent growth again. And it's really interesting. It's correlated. I use five. I, you know, I, don't, I really don't know between four and seven. But, and in Dallas, it dips right below it, and it was coming back. And so it's kind of interesting. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, what I look at. So what I, when I say oversupplied, I think a majority of the country was sitting under five, if you were to run right. that analysis. Okay. So these two data points in order to gather this ratio, where do you get those? The jobs and the new multiple? Uh, you get from various sources. You know, that's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, you're only as good as your sources. But, you know, we used Axiometric mm -hmm. in the beginning for that, which is a great resource for whomever is looking to, you know, drive a lot of expertise into their project. But, you know, now we use, I believe we use CoStar and on the jobs report, you know, you use BLF data or various other forms of research that you yeah. trust. But it just depends on your user. You know, I mean, some research is very expensive, but also very valuable, but there's marginal utility there. And if you're not going to use it, you got to be careful. So. I agree. There's a ton of good sources out there and they get better every, every year yeah. that I look at them. One metric that I've looked at recently is the Household formation in the U.S. to total housing supply. And there, mm -hmm. what we see is we have had more household formation than housing supply come online. So would that, from your mm -hmm. perspective, mean that there may be a housing supply overall for the overall housing market, but not necessarily for multifamily? Yeah. Again, this is my data versus your data, but I think directionally it's going to be accurate. We both see the same thing. In the run-up of household formation in this last cycle, we had a traditional home ownership rate of like 64%. The new household ownership rate was 50-50. So as housing was being formed, the more apartments were dominating the historic ratio, which is why you've seen this amazing run-up and so much wealth creation in this environment for individuals that entered this market. Okay, We're reverting from that now. 
the millennial getting older. They're moving into their first house. They want a less dense living experience. That's why SFR is getting so much capital formation around it. And what else Single is family happening? Single family rental. Just wanted to, yeah. Yeah, just wanted to, to clarify what that meant, uh, the single family rental. But yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a reversion to the mean there because we are human beings at the end of the day and we're going to want to have killed children and want to be married and we're going to want to let less dense experience. And I think the rents have gotten so high that, you know, when interest rates were actually higher, it was about 1.4 times your rent to own a home on average, which is kind of where the historic average is anyway. But now with where interest rates are, you're going to, you have this short-term imbalance. Certainly. And you're going to, I think you're going to see a lot of movement towards single family. And particularly in the group that can afford the rents that they're paying right now. And what are you doing about it? Because you focused on Urban Genesis has focused on on multifamily. One of the things that you're doing is what you just explained is of making sure that you're delivering the most value you can in, in the product for you compete in in rent rather than in amenities. But are you are you considering looking at different product types or perhaps at the SFR model? Or are you focusing on multifamily? Yeah. So two ideas there, and I'll touch on both of them. First, a very wise man, another wise man <laughs> told me, there's three things you do in real estate. There's three risks you take. Location risk, execution risk, and financing risk. You should never take more than one of those at one time. And when you take two, be careful. When if you take three, you're going to lose your money. Okay? And so... I eliminate location risk from my world. So I really focus on execution risk and I, for the most part, eliminated financing risk. For someone who's going to start their business, they're going to naturally have pressure to take financing because that higher network, that investor that's less, not sophisticated, but is accustomed to risk is going to want to see those higher returns. And as you evolve and your investor base evolves, people start to recognize risk-reward and a 15 is more valuable than a 20 if you have the right assumption. And I think that that's the evolution of someone who's in this business long enough. They're able to get people looking at a 12 versus a 20 on the same deal, but understanding that the underwriting is realistic and you can sleep at night. So the only risk I try to take is execution risk. So as an offset to what I just told you is our locations are very unique. They're just in, in case in point with Houston, med center and not peripheral med center in the center of it, right? Montrose, center of it. Heights at the center of it, at White Oak in Oxford or 20th in Ashland. I mean, those are the places we're at. So we don't take any location risk in pretty much any market except Austin because Boston's just an MSA bet. Really, you can't go wrong, I think. So. So that's kind of where we're at on that. And I think the second part to your question is, what do you do to mitigate around it? And how do you build your business around what we're seeing? I think there's two kinds of developers in the world. There's manufacturers and there's developers. And a developer is someone who looks at a corner and sees these beautiful lines and someone having coffee. And they're going to make it their beacon, right? They're going to drive by on Friday night after they go to dinner with their wives and say, I built that. Okay. And then there's a manufacturer and a manufacturer builds a process, vertically integrates around it and stamps it out. 
And as they learn lessons, they keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And they just get really good at doing one thing. Okay. I'm a manufacturer. I'm Southwest Airlines for development. All my pilots fly 737, you know, and it's a simple process. And so I created the Highline series. I've now stepped into the manufacturing process on the SFRM because the business side of this is you need to have exposure to different markets. And I am concerned about the urban exposure. And I know that there's a demographic trend that will support and mask a lot of the early learning just because there's going to be so many people that want it. And so we are headfirst into SFR. And our branding of it, it's actually called the Oasis. So Oasis wherever. And we have about a 1,000 units that will come up over the next 18, 24 months across Texas. Excellent. Very interesting. You mentioned, Matt, that one of the things that you do to eliminate location risk is find these great locations. How are you able to do that consistently? Because, I mean, that's something that you can secure a good location, but that's not something that you can put into the next project, right? You have to start start the process all over again of finding another great location. I think that you have to have a local presence. I think that's the first thing. You can't parachute in. My previous jobs, we've always parachuted in. And parachuting in when the tide is going up, I think works because there's just capital, so much capital formation around it. You just get around the nuances. But I think anyone who's parachuted into Texas since 2015, unless you're in Austin, hasn't probably done very well. You know, and as a result, you have to be on the ground. You have to have the pulse of the broker network. You have to have a pipeline of a seller that doesn't want to sell, that God forbid something happens, they get divorced, they get cancer. You know, things happen. And then that pops up. And would they rather work with someone that they've interacted with? One thing that's really funny is when a deal goes to market, most people think that's the first time the deal's been exchanged. That's not true. Usually what happens is there's a whisper with local groups and you got to be on that phone call list. And if you're not, then it goes to the market. And then, then you're competing with everybody else. So the goal is to be on that local list. That's interacting with brokers, driving relationships, and then ultimately um, also going direct to sellers at times and building a reputation. So I think that's, that's one thing. But I'm also, I'm a unique version of this. You know, I don't go after sites everybody else does. I actually specifically go after sites where if you were to call Morgan Group, or Graystar, or Alliance, they're going to go, mm, that's too small. That's too ill-configured. And by doing that, I'm really the only land buyer versus a retail guy or a townhome guy. So I, I look at broken sites because my product accommodates broken sites as part of the design. Okay, and That's some of the proprietary stuff I don't share with you, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't have structured parking. I park on the single floor. So I'm much more flexible as it relates to sites. So I fly underneath the institutional scale development. So I never really compete with anybody except for a townhome guy. And that business hasn't worked for a while. So it's been a nice world where I can kind of go into these places and pick up the balance of the sites at a reasonable number and do what I do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a multifold strategy. You just can't say I'm going to provide affordability. You have to figure out a path how to get there. Mm -hmm. And, you yeah. know, we have a skill here at Urban Genesis that allows us to do that. 
I really like enjoy listening to you describe your product. I mean, every question I've asked you, it, it sounds like you've asked it yourself many times before. And you have every answer very dialed down. When you started Urban Genesis back in 2013, what's the process been like since then in terms of growth for your company? How many of these questions did you have answered before you started? Or, or how's that jump and leap into building your own company been for you? I think everyone that starts a business thinks they're going to end somewhere and they're not. They're going to start a business and a pivot, if they're smart, they need to listen to the signal, ignore the noise. And the signal at times can be a pivot where you kind of explore something that may make more sense than your original idea. And you have to explore that. The challenge becomes, do you have the capital to be able to explore it and the grit to be able to keep doing what you're doing while you're testing on the side. And I think what has really been the skill that I brought to the table was that pivoting. I, I'm okay pivoting. I'm, I'm not emotional about my product. I'll keep pivoting just because if it makes sense, that's what I'm going to keep doing. I think I would caution people against changing too much too fast as well. Cause then there's people that pivot too fast too early so there's got to be a systematic process about testing and then changing your processes going forward. You know, I really, there's a book I love that changed the way I think. It is Ray Dalio Principles. You know, looking at failure as an opportunity to learn versus a mistake. And that's really how I approach this business. I think that's the first real lesson that I would pass on that's got me here. And the other one is managing people is a real thing. And culture is a real thing. And it took me two years to fire my first employee. Here, we have a 90-day probation process. If you can't communicate, be organized, and be responsive, which requires no skill, just it's who you are, you don't survive here. And what I've created is a little at times, I feel, you know, it, it can be cutthroat per se in some people's eyes. But when the culture is intact, it's actually really appreciated because every it's like a it's a body of water that's flowing. Like imagine you've got a pot and the pot's water and you're turning it and it kind of goes that's that's kind of what I think a company with good culture is versus boiling. You know, and I think that um that's been the most important thing I've learned is intact culture, a consistent process, and then ultimately do one thing and do it as best as you can. Because when you have multiple fronts, it's dangerous. Yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of what you touched on are things that, I mean, for example, the real estate and deal sourcing and deal analysis, you can know that you're ready for that part while working for a different company. But the people aspect and being able to fire and the 90-day probation, all of that, you can't really get ready for until you're running your own company. Yes. And uh, an obstacle towards why a lot of people, I mean, why you don't see a lot of young people starting real estate companies is usually because of the, I mean, you alluded to the capital that you need for your project, for your, your project. It's a very capital intensive business. It's not like starting any other kind of business where you're trying to sell products or services. How do you take care of, of that part? How do you fund your projects? And I mean, I'm sure that's evolved as well since you started the company. But can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, man, that's the million dollar question, I think, for everybody. You know, I was an immigrant 
I came here, pretty humble background. You know, my mom only had a high school education. My sisters worked along with my mom to put me through college. I went to UT and I graduated and I went and I got a job at Lazard Frere, which is an investment bank in New York. And that was a good moment for me because it, it really introduced me to a world where I didn't even know existed. And it was well, it paid well and I worked all the time. It so much money. So that was the first iteration of, I think I had a little different thing was I actually had savings and someone at my age probably didn't have it. But fast forward, you know, I ended up kind of running the general path that most investment bankers do. I went to a hedge fund and then I went to a private equity group and, you know, and I made money here and there and saved. And by the time I got to where I was at, I had enough to be dangerous, but not enough to live and be dangerous. It was hard. I don't have a better answer than that. It was really hard. I put every dollar I had into my first project. And I was, it's so funny. I'll tell a story because I think your audience will enjoy this. I left and I told my fiance, I said, listen, we have 18 months of capital we can live off of while I start this business. Okay. And, you know, that feels pretty good. Okay. (laughs) And I months is a, it's a lifetime. And I totally forgot about deposits. <laughs> you got to have deposits to put deals under contract. Wow. So, so that's how tight you were. <laughs> 18 months went to four months pretty quickly. <laughs> wow. So it was stressful. I worked a lot and I've worked a lot since, but I love what I do. So the answer is it's conviction, it's grind, and you're going to get punched in the face with a lot of no's. And then you know what happened to me? I had pizza with the right guy. And he believed in what I was doing. He saw you the had, talent. Had, but to, to have pizza with that guy, I'm sure you had pizza with 50 guys who were not the right guy. Um, I think more than that. Yeah, sure. I went through my entire phone, literally. Okay. And I called every single person I knew that was even remotely close to a rich person. And I said, wow. hey, do you know anyone with money? <laughs> Do you know what happened? No, I got no's everywhere. So I think the lesson I learned was um, if you have a network, you're blessed. You have no excuse. I didn't have a network, but you know what I had? I had grit and now I have that network and that's mm-hmm. different. And I think the, I think the, the thing that I, I really, a mistake I made that your audience can learn from if they're starting a business was I spent so much time on my strategy and explaining people my strategy. And I think that that's not how you start a business. I think that capital already knows where they want to be. They already know they want to be in Texas. They already know they want to be a multifamily. You don't need to answer those questions for them, especially when you're early on, unless you're doing a programmatic thing and you're not in my position, right? You've got money or you have a history, you worked at Heinz or whatever, right? I think that you need to focus on pipeline and an answer. On the deals itself, on the execution. Yep, surely. surely. And I think the capital will find you. And then the other thing I would tell you That's how you learn. That's how you get big. And that's how you become valuable. It's by, I mean, contacting those brokers, finding those opportunities rather than spending time on on strategy, but please keep going. Yeah, you get it's the pipeline exactly. I can feel it in you, like you, that that triggered you in something. And so you're right. 
And that's what it is. That's the lesson I've learned. I wish I'd learned it earlier because I spent six months trying to sell everybody on the strategy and they're yawning. You know, I lost them. And the one guy I had pizza with was able to see through that. And you know what his next question was for me? Where's your pipeline? I'm like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to, I'm supposed to give you a strategy and we're going to do the pipeline together. And then that's when it clicked. So the issue becomes it's the chicken or the egg, right? And, and I think that the answer is very, very clear to me. It's pipeline. And the, the capital market, there's too much information sharing at this point where you have to convince someone of an investment. It takes too much effort, not worth it. And then the other thing I would do is, the other big lesson I learned that I would really encourage, particularly your younger audience to listen to, is you should use the brokerage network to raise capital. It's a good idea. Because they're going to be able to tell you whether or not your deal is bankable anyway. It's a good litmus test. I, I used to not do that because I thought I was better than that. Why do I need brokers? I've got a great idea. But you know what? No, because their their job is to maintain the pulse of the equity network. So they know where their preferences are, if they're over-allocated, under-allocated, all that. Because the equity guys are doing the same thing. They're calling them and saying, hey, I need a, I need a date to the prom. And I want my date to be a you know red dress, you know, whatever. And so, and I think that's really important. And also, so that's the two yeah, pieces of advice I give. That's phenomenal advice. Thank you for that. And to that last point of not being afraid to use brokers and even not being afraid to pay them a fee to raise that capital, because when you're starting out, it's a lot more valuable to build that track record and to build that pipeline and build those connections in that network than whatever fee you could be paying them, at least when you're starting out. Yeah, I think everyone's got to eat. You know, it's got to be fair but everyone's got to eat and they exist for a reason. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, when I look back, I used to always say, why, why is this like this? Why do people do that? It's usually because they've learned their lessons and you just haven't, <laughs> you know, and I think brokers are really valuable. And one of the other things I wish I had done, I do now, and I'm particularly doing the SFR space is pick who you want to be and go emulate that. Go borrow off of them. Go look at their interiors. Go study them, and, and that Don't way you can cut the your wheel. lessons learned in half. Yep. Don't reinvent the wheel. There's yeah. no need to do that. So, right. Matt, what's next for Urban Genesis? You're still young, and I can tell that, that you want to keep growing. And that I, I can see, so I can yeah. certainly see a, a long journey ahead for Urban Genesis. What, what do you have in mind in that regard? Well, so I'm through the maturation process of a first product. Like, I'm a manufacturer, correct? So mm -hmm. I'm. I've built my little screw that now I'm screwing in every city, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm in the process of learning lessons from that and applying it to the second product. And I think the next five years for us is going to be continuing the Highline series and expanding it throughout the country. My biggest challenge there is I'm vertically integrated. And so I was going to expand to Atlanta. And the reason I didn't was... I didn't want to get on an airplane like that much anymore. You know, I, I, I need to have a work-life balance. I need to have children and all of you know, those other things that come into play. So I think for Urban Genesis is who's going to step up and take that expansion role at our company. And, you know, we have a couple good market leads that live in our markets. They're good candidates. We're currently in four cities. So I definitely see ourselves in Texas, you know, being at this pace going forward. I think my question is, is, as I expand to other markets, how does that happen where I doesn't destroy my life? <laughs> okay. And so 
Um, we're going to expand to the southeast. That's really how do I do it and maintain a healthy work-life balance. And what I'm most excited about is the SFR creation of a product. Because before being a process guy, I was learning the process. And this time I kind of know the process. And so it's mm-hmm. fun to be able to take a new idea and create around it without a lot of the stresses I had early on. So really the next five years is refining the Highline series, expanding it throughout the Southeast and starting up the SFR platform. I really like the analogy that you keep using of the manufacturer versus the developer. I think that's a very clear way to visualize. And I think that has a lot more potential being the, the manufacturer. I mean, if you're trying to build a big business, that's probably the where you can tap into more potential. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it, all a lot of the very successful apartment guys do one thing and they're good at it. And they have several products they do, but at the end of the day, you know, they do their thing and they're vertically integrated around it. Yeah. So Matt Updix, we have got a, a quick fire round. I just got a few quick questions. What's the book that has had the most profound impact in your, your life? Principles by Ray Dalio. Okay, fantastic book. What's the single most important skill to have as a real estate developer? Work ethic. Excellent. What's the real estate trend that you're paying attention to? Demographics. What particularly within demographics? What demographic Uh, trend? The aging millennial. Okay, okay. A parting piece of advice for our audience? Just do it. Just do it. Take the risk. Focus on the execution. Rather than yeah. on the strategy, the strategy is you're, yeah. what, I've, what I found, for example, uh, in that regard is you try to lay out a strategy, but even if you spend 100 hours laying out a strategy, you can come up with the most perfect strategy, but you don't have enough informa- the information that you need to lay out a perfect strategy you get while executing. So it's impossible to have the perfect strategy because you simply don't have the information before you execute. After you spent uh, some time executing, you're going to have a lot more information and you'll be in a lot better shape to establish that strategy. So yeah, I could not agree more with that statement. So Matt, how can people reach you if they want to learn more about you or about your company? Well, uh, it really depends. And you know, I want to be respectful. I'm very busy. And so I, if I responded to every email, I wouldn't be able to do my job. And so I think the best way for people to reach me is going on our website. Excellent. And if there's a particular thing that they're interested in, you know, there's a meet us uh, email thing. And depending on what their message is, it gets directed to whomever is the appropriate person to contact them. But I'm not the only guy here at this company who's sacrificed and learned lessons. There's a lot of us, there's 40 of us, and we all have different expertise. And um, usually what happens is, is if there's a question or something, it's directed to someone that's more appropriate. But I do have a mentorship program. I usually like to do it with people that I'm one degree of separation from. So, you know, keep going to the real estate events and, you know, we kind of go from there. And we have an internship program. So look out for job postings. I mean, I think the other difference is, is because we're growing at the rate we are, we have five open positions right now. So that's the best way to, you know, that's work with us. We're actually looking for an analyst. So if anyone's looking, you know, on your audience, we're looking for an analyst with a couple of years experience. And, you know, we're going to be in a position, I think, where we're going to continue to be in that hiring mode for a while. And, so, so. and I'm sure it won't take a while for someone to take you up on that offer. I mean, 
can see it being a very, very, very great opportunity for anybody who wants to grow in real estate. And I certainly know how busy you are, Matt. So I really appreciate your time today and being on, on the show. And everything that you shared with us today has been very informative and very valuable. I think we jumped right into the gist of it and run, jumped right into the interesting stuff. We skipped a lot of the more generic information, but I think it was certainly a very valuable interview for me and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners as well. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Best of luck. And I look forward to getting to know you with time. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Have a great weekend. Take care and all the best. See you. Enjoy Colorado. Thank you.